0: Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. In this Healing 101 episode, we explore the profound connection between body image and our inner selves. I am joined by Jessie Neeland, a seasoned personal trainer and body image coach. Jessie challenges the common misconception that altering our physical appearance can magically solve our internal struggles. Instead, she delves into the heart of the matter, unveiling the deeper layers of body image issues that often transcend the physical realm. Drawing from her extensive experience, Jessie highlights the prevalence of body hatred, anxiety, obsession, and dysmorphia, even among individuals who have achieved their fitness goals. She introduces the concept of body neutrality, an approach that encourages self-acceptance and respect for our bodies, regardless of whether they align with societal ideals. Jessie offers actionable and transformative methods to diffuse the power of body image issues ultimately freeing individuals to experience true confidence, security, and satisfaction in their lives. Will you start off by telling us in a nutshell what led to you becoming a body image coach?
1: I started in the fitness industry. I was a personal trainer for many years in New York City and, you know, was training some of the most conventionally attractive people on the planet. And they were all feeling the exact same way about their bodies as everybody else, it seemed like. So clearly, changing the way you look is not the key to feeling comfortable and safe and you know good in your body. So I started to become really obsessed with what was the key, like literally what is this about if it's not going to be solved by looking a certain way. And yeah, I got my life coaching certification and just basically was obsessed with this question and started coaching and Uh, Trying to find the answer. And over time, I definitely learned a lot and came up with the ideas and concepts and everything in my book. Like, it wasn't something anybody was talking about back then. So it was very much like, you just gotta love your body, just start loving it, or else hate it and feel insecure. There was no concept of like what you're supposed to do.
0: So I
1: tried to fill that gap.
0: And what was your relationship with your body like at the time and prior to that? So my relationship with
1: my body had always been very self objectifier like I had been objectified a lot. I had gotten a lot of praise and attention for how I looked. Once I started getting into fitness, I got a ton of attention and praise for my physique. So my self-worth was all wrapped up in that. Basically, I felt like I didn't have anything to offer the world, if not kind of looking hot and being fit. So even though there is a certain kind of like, quote unquote, confidence that came from that, it also came with a ton of anxiety because I was so aware that it could be lost at any moment and that I never really felt like seen and valued for who I was. So I was pretty self-conscious and insecure and had a lot of baggage around certain body parts that I felt went against this ideal because the ideal was like where all my worth lied, especially in terms of being attractive to men. So it was pretty fraught, I would say, but I never had the kind of experience of total hatred that a lot of my clients would have felt, except for specific body parts, like specifically around my breasts. I felt a lot of hatred and dysphoria, but I mean, it was mostly this sense that if I didn't look good, everybody would reject me and hate me and I would just be kicked out of society. Like it was like a very vague sense of danger, you know?
0: Yeah, and it's something I relate to so much because I've been through the anorexic stage and now I've gained quite a bit of weight. So people have started to say, Oh, you, it's really nice to see you looking healthy and normal. And, yeah. you know, suddenly you look feminine. And of course, my brain might as well translate that as, Well, you look fat and you look awful because, as you say, so much of my identity has been caught up in being the lean, the athletic, the yeah. unwell, the thin one. I'm curious as to how you coach people to change that narrative in their head and to learn to see that as a positive as opposed to latching onto those thoughts and thinking oh my god they're criticizing me oh my god they're rejecting me and I'm an awful person. So
1: bad news for all of my clients and probably everybody listening right now is that we really don't change the thoughts. Not directly anyway because that just doesn't work. It's like trying to change your feelings. It's not effective and honestly it makes people feel like more of a failure when they're trying to just like love something they hate or feel good about something they feel bad about. It's just too difficult and it's not how we're wired. So what we do instead, what I do with my clients is we go in and figure out what the underlying purpose is of the dysphoria or the, you know, self-consciousness or whatever it might be. So if it is like earning yourself a feeling of worth in the world, then now we have work to do in terms of building a sense of self-worth that is connected to other stuff. If it's about Burning yourself a sense of belonging or acceptance. Great. Now we have work to do about how to get your needs for acceptance and belonging met some other way outside of how you look. So a lot of the work kind of lives in the space of making the reason your brain is telling you you have to look a certain way, making that just unimportant so that those thoughts get quieter, less frequent, they have way less power. They might still bounce around, but you no longer buy into their story because you're getting your needs met or you've accepted. Certain limitations to the ability to get your needs met. You know, some people think, oh, if I looked a certain way, my life would be perfect and I'd have no problems. Like, that's not something you can just go do, right? It's something you would have to move through an acceptance phase of my life is never going to be perfect and I'm always going to have problems and that's okay. It's so individual to each person. It depends on what your, the purpose of your body image issues is. You know, what it's trying to earn you or solve for you or help you avoid determines the work that we do to strip it of power.
0: Yeah. And I think, as you so accurately say, so much of eating disorders and eating issues are to do with control, a sense of belonging, a sense of safety. Yeah. And trying to replicate that and letting go of that, it feels like you're jumping off a cliff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So what I always tell people with this too is, if you waited until you felt safe and good to take action, you would wait forever. Like, if you waited to believe that this was going to be fine to take action, you would be waiting forever. Because- Ultimately, you don't feel safe because you've never usually experienced or cultivated a feeling of safety in that space. That means you got to take action. That's why I do a lot of fear facing work with clients. So, for example, like if you feel anxious about going out without makeup on, then me convincing you you're fine to not wear makeup is pointless. Like, we will get nowhere. But going into the world without makeup, maybe slowly, like as a sort of exposure therapy thing, doing it slowly until you can do it, that is going to teach your brain and body that without makeup, you're still safe. People don't turn on you, attack you, reject you. Like, for the most part, a lot of the things we're afraid of, we can heal the somatic sensation of being unsafe by facing the fear and experiencing safety. And this doesn't apply to everything, because certainly there are areas in which you might not be actually safe. You know, we know that there's like weight stigma, transphobia, like there's so many things that you could actually feel the opposite of that if you were to do the fear facing around it. But even in those cases, we're still looking at, okay, then what do you do with that? Can you cultivate resilience in the face of that? Can you separate your self-worth from other people's responses to you? Can you, you know, find pockets of community that actually do hold space for this where you are safe? to show up that way. So yeah, it really depends. But cultivating safety is a big question.
0: It is. It's so hard. And I think particularly we live in such an image-based society and, and it's so lookist and all we see is images. And that's why people are doing so much, you know, surgery and and Botox and, and having fillers so young because it's like we've we've created this ideal that people feel they need to conform to and it, it's really sad. And I mean, I'm a fine one to talk because I'm definitely still of the opinion that like, you know, my looks and my thinness, my like, you know, how I feel has a lot to do with my self-worth. And it's like when you're so used to going to the extremes with that as well, which I know that you are too with, you know, with exercise it's that it's very hard to let go of and also being okay with being normal and mediocre, not having to be Ooh, the yeah. fittest in the gym and the one who can like pummel the cardio machines for the longest yeah. or lift the heaviest, whatever it is. So that's an interesting one because it, this actually has a lot of overlap
1: specifically with eating disorders and like over exercising. It's the body image avatar. I have four body image avatars I talk about in my book, and this is the high achiever. So People who connect their self worth, not just to their body, but actually to their superiority or being at the top of a hierarchy, that is some of the hardest work to do to heal because you are constantly going to be given the message, even as you're trying to heal, that like only the tippy top of this, you know, tier of people are deserving of all the things you want. And it is incredibly terrifying to imagine. Consciously dropping yourself down that hierarchy, losing social privilege, losing social status and capital by, let's say, giving up dieting or giving up over exercising or whatever it might be. But in those cases, then you have to recognize okay, so my body image issues are trying to earn me social privilege and status and capital. And I could chase that forever, but like as we get older, we're going to lose it anyway. It's a uh, conditional and temporary at best. So is that really where you want your worth to be coming from? And what does that just mean in general about like people? What does it reveal about how you feel about people lower on this hierarchy and marginalized people? There's a lot there to unpack, but it can be unpacked so that your worth, as you said, being normal or mediocre is like not a slight against your worth that you can just be a regular-ass person instead of the best at something or everything, because being the best does not actually make you more worthy of the important things like love and belonging and respect, you know?
0: And I think another, yeah, interesting point that I just was thinking about as you were talking is that when you're so used to going to the extremes, it can be very scary because, you know, you go from being, restrictive with your food over exercising and then all your body then wants to do is to binge and to totally like with the exercise it's like oh it's either all or nothing it's 100 or zero and so it's learning slowly like you said is building that sense of safety and trust in yourself which i think can be so hard when you're so far one way yeah because your body is just absolutely craving either the binge or it's needing to Continue on that treadmill of the endorphins and the dopamine and it, it, it's just such a yeah an addictive hamster wheel that you're on. It is it changes the way we're wired. Like
1: the longer you engage in those kinds of things, the more you come to associate like the feeling of doing them with being good, the harder it's going to be to rewire it back to a place where resting is safe and eating is safe. Like that is absolutely some of the hard work required to set yourself free. But also, like, it can be done. It just has to be done on these, like, multiple levels. It can't just be that you start eating more and stop exercising and deal with it, right? You also have to be looking at the underlying stuff of, like, what am I losing by having a more, quote-unquote, normal body? Like, what needs am I afraid are going to go met, unmet, or what needs are being unmet? What am I really wanting that I've been trying to get by being hyper-lean and thin? And maybe never even got anyway, but that was always the plan. So it requires a lot more nuance and creativity. And also, speaking of nuance, I think that that's another important point is you mentioned like the all or nothing. You know, you're either like on the bandwagon or off it. And that's how we talk about diets and exercise routines. But the reason that our brains go to a place of all or nothing black and white thinking is fear. It is a very clever mechanism in the brain to erase nuance when we're scared, because if a bear was running at you, now's not a good time to be like, I wonder what the bear is feeling. And I wonder what, you know, like there's no nuance, no safe, unsafe, go. So there is so much value in this mechanism in our brain. However, it's often being misapplied to everyday situations because we live with constant anxiety because of what you said, like the the messages we're exposed to, the images we're exposed to, the experiences we have, whether we're being praised or criticized for how we look. Basically, we learn that the whole thing is very scary, and so nuance goes right out the window.
0: And I do think like, as you rightly point out as well, that actually when you look back and when you were at your thinnest, when you were at your leanest, were you actually at your happiest? Absolutely not. No, I hated my stomach the most when I was at my leanest because it stuck out so much. I was miserable because, you know, I was so like highly strung and I wasn't sleeping that I was really anxious. And, and you forget all of that. You just like, you, you know, you see these pictures in your phone and I occasionally, you know, get a bit nostalgic. I'm like, oh, Yeah, And it's sometimes having to, I think, take a step back and remind yourself that you say of the sacrifices that you make in order to be that super lean, super thin, like, you know, super controlling type. And it's really asking yourself, is that the life I want? That's one of the reasons I'll sometimes just do like values work at
1: the beginning of the journey with a client. (laughs) Because if you... Aren't aware of your own personal values, then society's values are going to be given to you and they'll just seem like your values. If you haven't done some deeper exploration of what truly you value most, then winning, succeeding, being the best, you know, like uh, being disciplined, all these things that are handed to you, they're just going to be the values you're upholding. But once you get really clear on, you know, maybe you have a higher value for freedom or connection or being present. Well, now it's pretty clear that the thing you were just doing and describing isn't in alignment with your values. If it was, you could just keep doing it and we wouldn't be having a conversation. But like, it's not. That's why it feels so bad to us. It's a hard, long journey to find body neutrality, but it's a lot easier when you can recognize I'm doing this to align myself with what matters most to me. And that just didn't dieting and chasing status and being anxious
0: and all that didn't that doesn't align with the person I want to be in the world. Will you tell us why you came up with the concept of body neutrality as opposed to body positivity?
1: Yeah so I didn't like invent the term body neutrality. When I started doing body image coaching body positivity was basically the only option and so that was the language I used. It didn't necessarily always feel right to me the the language of like learning to love your skin you know love the skin you're in that whole thing but When I was exposed to the term body neutrality, it was through the lens of like just an alternative to body positivity. And the idea at the time was it's less pressure and it's more achievable for most people to imagine feeling kind of meh about their body rather than feeling like a gushing stream of affection and love for their body. So ultimately, I adopted it right away just to take the pressure off my clients and like offer them that judgment free space of. Feeling meh about your body is a huge improvement on hating it. Let's maybe just think about that instead of trying to, like, imagine this science fiction idea that you could ever look in the mirror and just feel gushy and lovey. So mostly that was pretty much the extent of how I understood it at first. Some people would talk about it as, like, focusing on what your body can do instead of how it looks, which, again, it's an improvement, but it still has its limitations. And so what I ended up turning it into was not just a like sort of end goal or more achievable thing to move toward as you're healing body image issues, but also a map to get there. So I ended up creating the body neutrality blueprint and like the avatars. All of the stuff I did was to help walk you from body image issues to body neutrality. And ultimately, I now believe body neutrality to be pure magic and not at all mutually exclusive with loving your body or body positivity because it's just about stripping away false or excess meaning and significance from your body. You know, like the meaning, this is who I am and what gives me worth in the world, for example. Because once you strip those things away, it's a blank slate. You can think and feel whatever and it's all valid and it's all fine. But it doesn't come from that like super loaded place of, Because my body is the most important thing about me and because I have to be the best in order to be anything, if I stop exercising twice a day, people will hate me. You know, like there's a lot of false information in that sentence. So once you strip that stuff away, you can just look at your body and go, this isn't how
0: I'd prefer to look and
1: move on. You know, it doesn't have the big like emotional power of you.
0: How do you help clients step off that treadmill of extreme training? Because it is just so physically and chemically addictive. Well, gosh, I
1: would say that probably one of the most important things to start with is getting really clear on why you want to. Because again, it's so freaking uncomfortable. Like if you just do it on a whim, you're going to immediately go back to it. you are going to be like, that sucked. I don't want to feel like that. And I'm going back to exercising all the time. Spending some time before you actually take action in that direction of like reducing or quitting whatever behaviors you've been engaging in. I think it's really important to take some time to understand. Why you want to make this shift, how that aligns with the person you want to be and your values. And then also, why did you get sucked into it in the first place? Like, what purpose was it or is it solving for you or trying to solve for you? So that you're really aware, basically, of like the alternative. Because again, if you have no idea why you need to do it, it's going to be really tempting to go back to it when you're uncomfortable. But if you're really uncomfortable because you've not worked out in three days and you're freaking out, but then you remind yourself, okay, the reason I want to work out is because some part of my brain is telling me that the only way people will like me is if I'm extremely thin. Now you have work to do off the treadmill. It's just too difficult for most people to stick to a new plan of reducing or quitting you know, disordered behaviors around food and exercise if they don't have a sense of what they can focus on instead to move towards healing. So, I will often encourage people to focus on bravery over comfort, maybe, or over whatever they're feeling. If you can tap into courage and recognize that your brain might scream at you that you're going to die, or like everyone will hate you and kick you out of humanity, you know, you just got to kind of make space for the fact that it's going to be a big, dramatic message from your brain in these moments. And your job is to be brave in the face of them because those are primal. You know, we're never going to change those thoughts by just deciding to change them. They are literally saying evolutionarily, we all learned that in order to be safe as humans, we had to be a part of the human club, you know? And they're literally saying this makes you unsafe and you're going to get kicked out. And then you're going to die. So even though like sometimes it doesn't seem like it should be that serious, it's so deadly serious to our nervous systems that making space for how it can feel like you're going to die to do something that somebody else does with no problem. I know the first time I I was like working really hard to face my fears around, I like went from push-up bras to lined bras to unlined bras to bralettes. I was like working my way away from this fear. And the first time I went braless in public, I literally, it was like an hour and a half. I went for a walk with a friend and I spent the entire time feeling like I was going to die and everyone was staring at me. Like, I don't actually know what happened that day, but that was my experience because it it is, it's this primal fear. But if you are courageous enough to face it over and over and over, that fear does go away.
0: Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. How do you tend to work with clients? I mean, you've spoken about, first of all, maybe having that sort of period where you assess what your values are and then having maybe a bit of a grieving process. And and what then do you typically move through or is it completely bespoke depending on the client? It is completely bespoke. It really depends
1: on what is causing them the most suffering because that's usually where we'll start. But in general, I would say we we more or less always go through the same stages or steps, which, you know, kind of start by, ident- I have them identify themselves within the avatars just as like a kind of locating yourself on the map of what could be going on underneath the underlying purpose of your body image issues. And then from there, it's about getting really clear on your specific purpose or purposes, because a lot of times people have multiples. So really figuring out what need you're trying to meet using your body, what associations or tasks you've been giving your body like to give you worth for example or you know find you a partner like these are things that once you name them and are really clear on it the rest of the work kind of takes care of itself because it becomes clear whether you need to go meet this need or solve this problem or whatever it might be another way or if it's not something that's possible like again to live a perfect life and be happy forever, then you're, you're starting to look at like grief or acceptance work around the loss of that fantasy that if only you could look a certain way, something impossible would happen. And then at that point, it really, it, that's the bespoke part for sure. Like it depends on what they discover, but that's what we end up dealing with for most of our work together.
0: And how long do you typically work with a, a client or again, is that completely individual? Totally individual. My packages are six months. I have
1: had clients finish the six months and just feel like they got everything they needed out of it. And I've had clients work with me for years because sometimes that is just what is needed and what feels most supportive. But in those cases, after the first package, we're not usually doing the same kind of like excavation work to figure out what's going on. We're doing the supportive work around, let's say, your body image issues existed to make people know something about you or to set boundaries for you. I mean, now you might have another year of work around like who you are, how you communicate that to others, how you advocate for your needs, how you set boundaries, like all of this stuff. Or if you can't connect to the signals in your body, for example, you just feel completely dead or numb, you have no idea what you're feeling. That is like, you know, now you've got a year of learning how to tune in and doing all these different practices and explorations and connecting to your emotions. So a lot of the work that follows is longer term work. So at that point, if somebody wants support, you know, that's what we're working on. But it's always with the goal of putting the body image issues out of business, turning down the volume on those thoughts or stripping them of power, because the more experiences you have in the world of, you know, safety and belonging and getting your needs met and feeling seen and all these things that we kind of ask our bodies to earn us, the less important it is to look a certain way to get them.
0: And how do you advise clients to just like dispel all the misinformation that we get fed, you know, whether it's the keto diet or whether it's going, I mean, we are fed so much crap basically by the media. And I think particularly for women who are susceptible to eating issues and to who are insecure about their bodies, you suddenly jump on these different bandwagons and it can be so unhelpful. Do you tend to advocate like a balanced Diet to everyone, or do you think just again what works for you works for you? Or I go with what works for you works for you, but I almost always do some amount
1: of re education work around like I introduce clients to anti diet work, for example. So, you know, something like health at every size, intuitive eating. There's a lot of information out there that debunks the myths of dieting, that debunks the science and research of quote unquote obesity and the BMI, all these things can be debunked through education. And even though that won't immediately make you feel differently or alter how you see yourself, having that stuff in the background does change how you interact with that kind of material. So like if you start seeing weight loss, diet ads or whatever on Instagram, once you've already taken in a lot of that information and started to recognize, whoa, this is BS, you know, like this is absolute manipulative nonsense and I don't want to buy into it anymore. Then when you see it, instead of thinking to yourself, oh, I should do that, I wonder, I wonder if that works, maybe I should try it, you start thinking like, these jerks are trying to manipulate me again, right? Like it, it changes the way you interact with that material, and it can feel incredibly empowering to recognize that we've been lied to and sort of align yourself with like liberation instead of oppression in that way, especially because so much of it has to do with gender.
0: Yeah, gender, and as you say, and these huge companies that are basically just trying to get you to buy their products and, and trying to just feed you this narrative of misinformation, which, as we discovered like recently, all this high-intensity workout stuff has all been targeted, really, all all the research has been done on men and not women. And so actually, it's a complete irrelevance and it yeah, sends our cortisol levels skyrocketing and actually now has been shown to retain weight. Or what, yep. I mean, honestly, it's just exhausting, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and so that's why I don't, I don't prescribe anything for anyone. I mean, if you want to do high-intensity interval training and it makes you happy and aligns with the the life you want and feels good, like, awesome. And if you never do that, also awesome. It doesn't matter. It's just an issue of having all the facts before diving into it. So if you choose to engage in it, it's not coming from a place of like, my body is shameful, I'm unworthy, and I have to do this in order for people to like me. It's coming from a place of,
0: I want to. How do you help clients to process comments coming from other people because i think as you're particularly on a journey of recovery and you're not like people don't can't just say oh god i want to know what your training program is you're so lean oh god you know you're so in shape or you're so thin and it's like, how do you get like that
1: yeah or you're
0: looking so well and oh god it's so great to see you looking feminine so <laughs> i take a pretty harsh stand on comments on
1: people's appearance i am of the opinion that given the world we live in and the damage it causes nobody should ever be making comments on someone else's appearance I get pushed back from that sometimes. I'm like, whatever, everybody can do what they want. But to me, it just feels like so clear that even well-meaning comments and compliments are causing way more damage than they are doing any kind of good because nobody's even taking those compliments in. Right. Like if you say to someone like, wow, you look great. They're just thinking, no, I don't. You know, if they're struggling in that space, they're not going to take that in and be like, oh, thank God someone thinks I look great. So I don't think they do a whole lot of good. And I know they do a whole lot of bad. So. I am very against that, but people are going to do it anyway. So I generally will work with a client in a few different ways. One is to boundary set and advocate for themselves. I guess that's two things. But like, for example, if people in your family do it, you know, like every time you go home, you're getting comments on your weight, like that would be a good place to practice the skill of advocating for what you need and setting a boundary. And I will coach my clients to walk into Thanksgiving and be like, I'm actually not accepting comments on my weight this year. Thank you. You know, like there is so much power in just letting people know I'm not available for that. That's not something I want to engage in. Or am I willing to let happen here? And it doesn't mean people are going to follow it, but it does change the experience because now at least you have someone advocating for you in that room. And it's you. Every room you go in, in fact, which is just a lot more empowering, I think, um, and makes us feel safer. And it means you have like some consequences if they don't, right? If somebody's like, I heard your boundary and I'm going to break it. Now you get to be like, that's not okay. Like in this relationship, I expect to be respected. It changes the dynamic from like, well, they just do this thing and I silently deal with it and that there's nothing I can do to now I have a reason to speak up because I set the intention and they've ignored it. But I would also say that like, you know, random people at Starbucks might make comments and you don't need to set boundaries with every stranger you see. Right. So on the other side of things, I feel like it really depends on what appeals to a person. But personally, I like a little passive aggression and I like to make the person who said the thing uncomfortable. So for me, if I got a comment on my weight or body at this point, I might say something like, thanks, I have an eating disorder (laughs) because I don't owe them a comfortable moment. They've just done the uncomfortable thing. I'm not going to be uncomfortable for them. I'm going to hand that discomfort right back to them. I don't necessarily prescribe this for other people. I just know that it feels really empowering in my world to basically like challenge the person's comfort level and make them deal with like, oh, I think I might have just done something uncomfortable, even if they blame me. It doesn't even matter. It just makes them think, right? Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that kind of thing. But yeah, you can handle it any number of ways. But I I think it's important that we not just swallow it, like just take it and swallow it and be like playing along to make them comfortable. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been working out when actually you've been like starving yourself, you know?
0: We are upholding it, you know? We're giving them permission to keep doing it. Jesse, I could talk to you for hours, but I know you've got to go. So I'm going to finish by asking you whether you could share with us the best piece of advice that you feel you were given at your sort of, hardest moment when it comes to feeling like you were good enough.
1: I can tell you something that I I use a lot, which is like putting the thing into context. And I definitely use this for myself when these kinds of thoughts come up. And I also use it with clients because good enough or like worthy or however it's phrased, we walk around as if that's just a thing you can be, like it's a yes or a no and has no context whatsoever. But that's totally nonsense. It would be like saying, yeah, you're tall enough, like tall enough for what? What are we talking about? So the way I like to think of it is good enough for what? We're good enough at what? And good enough for whom? Because a lot of times when we walk around feeling unworthy or not good enough, it's like unworthy of something very specific that would be much more helpful for us to actually talk about or not good enough for someone particular who just wasn't our kind of person. You know, and sometimes that's like a parent, like you never felt good enough for a parent because they didn't have the capacity to make you feel seen and whole. That does not mean you're not good enough because, again, the context here is constantly relevant. Yeah, it's not like a light switch being good enough. It's not a an indictment, yes or no. It's a lot more nuanced. And by naming the context, you get to have a lot more interesting conversations and do a lot more healing. But also you can immediately see like, oh, yeah, that person didn't think I was good enough or I didn't feel good enough for them, but I am good enough for the relationships with people, you know, that make space for me and that I want to be in. So isn't that kind of the point? Like, if you can be good enough there, does it matter,
0: you know? Yeah, I think it's feeling enough in yourself and yeah. like having that, yeah, which you so rightly just outlined in our conversation it's really you've got to come to that place of feeling enough from within and that comes with time and with work absolutely and it is not easy jesse thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation and thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing in this space because it's definitely helped me immensely and um, i hope we can speak again soon i'm so glad and thank you for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.